Hi, Moguls. Welcome to the show. Today, we have one of my favorite guests, Ned Grimes. Ned is the CIO for a multi-billion dollar family office, the Argyros family. Did I say that right, Ted? That is correct. <laughs> okay, Ned. George Argyros is the former owner of the Seattle Mariners, ambassador to Spain, and the second largest owner of apartments in Orange County, California. Ned has been managing money for close to 30 years. He's received his BS from San Diego State University and an MBA from the University of Southern California. And we're going to hear his story, how he retired super early. Hi, Ned. Welcome to the show. Hi, Marilyn. How are you? And hi, everybody. Thanks for, uh, for having me on. Yeah, uh, moguls, get ready to listen to Ned's story. You're going to love it. So, Ned, you work in a family office. Can you describe exactly what a family office does? Sure. So, as a family office, our job is to take care of the family, the family being the Arjo's family in our case. And so, when families get to a certain level of wealth, uh, which our, this family has, you know, multiple billions of dollars, um, they tend to want to have things taken care of that they don't want to deal with. So as an example, my role is I manage all their money. Uh, so that's one of the functions of the family office. We have what we call internal concierge services. So people who schedule their travel, their planes, um, you know, their boats, making sure all their, all their, their trips and whatnot are, are arranged. Um, we have uh, people here who manage their foundations. So they're one of the biggest donors in Orange County, if not the biggest donor in Orange County, uh, to various charities and so we have people that man run and manage that part of the, of the, the family for them um, we have people who manage hire fire pay take care of all of the household employees at their different homes so they have a, a, a numerous homes uh, around the world and they're, they all have permanent staff at them so those need to be managed uh, so really it's it's soup to nuts anything that the family needs done for both their personal and professional business um, we are all employees that take care of that, uh, those aspects of their life for them. That's amazing. And I, I heard a story one time, um, you know, a certain person that had a house and they explained that just the light bulbs, switching the light bulbs in somebody's huge estate, you need someone just to switch out all the light bulbs, which could, you know, it could be like hundreds of light bulbs in one house. So it's extensive work to run someone's multi-billion dollar family. I don't know that we have a light bulb changer here, but I will tell you that we we do, we do have a dog walker, uh, somebody who, who walks the dog every day, and, and uh, they're they're in taking care of the dog and training it and walking it and feeding it and playing with it. So, <laughs> and, and and do be careful of dog walkers because you heard in the news that they're shooting um people's dogs who apparently are rich and famous, and I don't know if you heard about Lady. Gaga, her dog walker got shot and they, they took her to French Bulldogs, but the Bulldogs did come back, but the um, dog walker was shot. So do please tell everyone to be extra careful. That's awful, but I'm going to guess that, that on Harbor Island, which is a private island in Newport Beach, there's probably not too many uh, terrorists there attacking the dog walkers. Oh my gosh. Well, see, that's what it's going to be coming to, that we need private islands. We do need security. We do need our police. <laughs> and uh, my my dog was stolen in West Hollywood. Um, someone grabbed her from the park, but the social media um, rallied together the neighbors and, um, and somebody released her in the middle of the night and I got her back. So um, it's, it's, you know, for the dog. So, uh, well, I want to, want to ask you, um, so tell us about the family you work for. 
can you maybe share how they created their wealth and um, what they do now? Yeah, so so George Argeros uh, graduated from Chapman University. Uh, I'm not sure if it was the late 50s or early 60s. And had, he was a grocery store manager in the city of Orange and had this concept that if he could develop busy street corners in Orange County, which was rel- relatively rural in those days, um, and maybe populate them with convenience stores and a gas station, you know, kind of like the, what you see almost on every street corner today, just a little conglomerate of, uh, of shops, um, that he might be able to make some money doing that. And so he would tie up the, the street corners in contract because he didn't have any money. And then he would go out and find an oil company, you know, like an Exxon or, you know, or, or in those days, Gulf or, you know, Phillips 66 to commit to, to putting a, a gas station on the corner. And then he might find a mini Mart like, a, you know, today, like a 7-Eleven. But, you know, this is the precursor to 7-Eleven. Um, and then he would get some fees out of that. And eventually he built up a little bit of wealth and started developing apartments and uh, started developing apartments and built up uh, a pretty good net worth. Um, ultimately becoming the second largest apartment owner in Orange County with about 5,300 apartments here in Orange County. Um, and then, pardon me? I said, that's oh, a big amount of apartments, 5,300. We, we have an entire business here. I was talking about how we manage the family office, families, uh, finances and whatnot here. We have an entire uh, business here, just manages probably 200 people to manage those apartments. Um, and then in the seventies, he started kind of buying and selling businesses. So he bought, um, you mentioned he was the owner of the Seattle Mariners. He bought the Mariners for about $12 million in the seventies and sold it for about 250 million at some point. Um, he famously used to say he, he was the one who signed Ken Griffey Jr. Who's of course a, a hall of famer now. Um, he bought and sold, um, Eric Howe, which had filed bankruptcy. So he and William Lyon, the famous home builder, they were friends and they got together and built that or bought that and sold it to American Airlines for, you know, about a four times profit. And he just kept doing that, buying and selling businesses. Number of names you you know, like Igloo, you know, used to be in part of the portfolio and just built this massive fortune. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, at the same time in the 70s, he started kind of that, Orange County has been very famous for being conservative uh, politically. And he started you know, the, the new Republican clubs and was very instrumental in uh, re- Republican politics here in, in California. Ultimately, he became, as, a, as you mentioned, the ambassador to Spain uh, when George Bush was president uh, from 2000 to 2004. And as you know, those are typically appointments to big donors or big fundraisers for the party. So he, he was very instrumental in helping, uh, you know, the Republican cause here in, in Orange County in those days. Yes, what they're doing now. So today, uh, they're both retired. Uh, the family is very philanthropic. We have a very large foundation here. Um, it's it's hard to drive down a street here in Orange County without seeing the Ardros name on some building where they've donated uh, money, whether it's the Performing Arts Center, Hogue Hospital, St. Joseph's Hospital. Um, if you go to Chapman University, there's an Ardros School of Business. Um, where they've not only have donated an enormous amount of money there, but also have conducted uh, massive fundraisers. We had a fundraiser last year for Chapman's Business School that was the single largest uh, fundraise in one day in Orange County history. So they're very, very generous with their capital, um, uh, making sure that you know those in need, uh, you know, are being taken care of. That's really beautiful. And 
And let me just repeat for our audience, because we have inspiring, we have aspiring moguls, we have people that are learning to do their first LLC or corporation or their first investment for the very first time. You said George was a former grocery store manager. That's correct. That's correct. That's how he started when he got out of college. He was the grocery store manager for a small independent grocer in the city of Orange. So basically his idea and his thinking of just coming up with idea to make Orange County um, have those streets, have many shopping centers, his idea, his invention, he was able to in- implement that and without any former help, it looks like. So it seems like if you dream it, believe it, you can achieve it. So that's super inspiring to our audience today. And um, I want to ask you, um, you're such a, a I, I hope you can share your story too. You run all their investments. How do you think about risk, returns, and asset allocation for the family? Yeah, and and that's a great question. As, you know, as you can imagine, a portfolio the size is relatively complex. Um, but the I think the things that we do are applicable really to any size portfolio, and that is we start with risk first. You know, um, I think a lot of people think about returns first. Where can I get the best return? We start with risk. Now. Granted, we're in the stay rich business, not the get rich business. So we're, you know, the family's already rich. So our job is to keep them rich. So we have to think obviously about risk first. But I think that's a good lesson for any investor is that you have to consider the risk of the investment first, because if the risk doesn't make sense for you, then you shouldn't be involved in it no matter what the potential uh, gains are on that uh, uh, investment. So we start with risk first. and we, We basically started with a budget and said, we're, we are willing to allow our portfolio to go down by a certain number, okay, a certain amount, a certain dollar amount in a crisis. So last spring, I would call a crisis, you know, when the markets collapsed and the stock market was down 35 plus percent, you know, in six weeks, we had already planned for a scenario like that. We did not come close to hitting our downside number, even though we had kind of modeled uh, that 35 to 40% was the the kind of downturn we wanted to protect against. Um, so we feel like the portfolio was pretty well positioned because of that. So the way you do that is you look at historical downturns and say, okay, when there's a downturn, let's say it's a stock downturn, you assume that if the market's down 35%, your stocks are gonna be down at least that, that amount. So you take whatever your portfolio value is of stocks, cut it by 35%. You run different scenarios for bonds. Sometimes the bond market can be up in a downturn because people are fleeing for safety. Sometimes, as we saw last year, it can be down. So for us, because we want to maximize our planning for the downside, we modeled out bonds being down also. And then all your other investments, whether it's real estate, you know, especially if you're getting cash flows off, off your real estate, you want to look at those and could those get impaired also. And that gives you your bottom line of, hey, this is the downside risk of my portfolio. And you can do it if you've got, you know, $1,000 in the market today, you can look and say, listen, I've got a 35 to 40% potential for decline. Am I comfortable if my portfolio goes to $600? And if you are, then your, 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 your risk allocation is probably right. If you're not comfortable with it going to $600 from 1000 then you need to kind of back down, lower your, your stock allocation a little bit and put a little more somewhere else into something a little more stable maybe like a bond portfolio. So that's how we think we think about it is we look at the downside and then we try and build an allocation that manages to that downside. And so we don't exceed, 
you know what our what our our risk uh, our risk allocation is, and then uh, I'll leave I'll leave it that that, that kind of covers how we do our our you know risk planning, which is critical for us. Okay, so that leads us up to like, well, can you kind of share with us how you start how how you um, got involved with investing, and then how do you how do you get to go um, how do you pick or choose the career path to working with the family office? Yeah, so I think like a lot of people, uh, you know, I graduated college with zero idea what I wanted to do. Um, I had a, a degree in physiology, which made me qualified to do not a lot of stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh, physiology! Wow. <laughs> yeah, so you know, um, I I had I had grandiose plans when I went to college of going to medical school. That lasted for about a month, um, and then, uh, but I did go ahead and finish my degree in physiology. So my father made a recommendation to me that. I should look at either consulting or for consulting firms or investment banks and maybe try and spend a couple of years with one of those where I see a lot of different businesses and maybe I'd observe one that I liked and I wanted to go to work and I would want to go to work for some one of those industries. Um, I ended up spending six years in investment banking. What I realized is that you got a pretty good head for numbers and uh, you know I like the process of looking at a business, analyzing it, understanding how they make money what their positioning is and then trying to determine what it might be worth and whether it was good buy or sell. So I, I, I liked that process. I went back to business school at USC after six years of investment banking and I joined a very small asset manager in Pasadena called Roger Ingham and Associates. And um, we grew that from uh, about $2 billion in assets to 19 billion over the seven years I was there. And we were very fortunate to sell it um, right, you know, right around 2000 during the during the tech bubble, and got you know kind of top dollar for it. And um, I don't think the buyer was too <laughs> too happy when the markets rolled over, you know, 12 months later. But for us, it, it worked out well. And um, that was kind of how I got my start. I left there. I retired. You know, I were joking about this earlier. I re I retired at 38. That retirement lasted about four hours, and my wife told me to find something to do or get out of the house. So, uh, so too young, not not enough hobbies, and too much ADD to to sit around the house. So I uh, I went to work for a competitive money manager in Pasadena called Provident Investment Council. Um, I ran the small cap strategy there for uh, almost eight years. Um, I took a second retirement and it really wasn't a retirement per se. It was more of a, I was stepping away. I wanted to work with family offices. I was gonna, my intention was to take a six month break and then re, you know, restart with family offices. The timing was, you know, phenomenal for me. I, I left there June 30th of 2008. The financial crisis hit full tilt in September of 2008. And instead of, sitting there managing money and trying to figure out what to do in a 40% downturn. I was, you know, writing a blog and, and, uh, giving some people some advice, uh, at the beginning of 2009, I joined a family office, uh, kind of an iconic family, part of the Bronfman family. They were the uh, founders of Seagram's, um, to help manage their money and, uh, spent about four years with them and then, uh, made a little pit stop at a money manager to help them, uh, fix their business up and came over here uh, about five years ago to Arnell to work with the Arjo's family. So um, it, it was kind of a, a long process, a, a few stops, but primarily I was an investment banker where I learned how to analyze businesses. I was a money manager where I learned how to invest capital. 
And now I work for family offices where I allocate risk. Um, I select other managers in some instances, and I also manage money. That's incredible. And and can you just, I just want our, our audience to understand when you went to your first company, you took them from approximately about 2 million. And then you said, you uh, then you made like uh, billions, right? We, we, they had 2 billion under management and we grew it to 19 billion. Okay. So that was, that was right at the beginning of the tech run. Um, when we got there, they had no technology stocks in uh, 1994. I say we, because uh, another gentleman joined a month before me, uh, or, or a month after, I can't remember now, we joined basically at the same time, and we became partners and ran a number of uh, uh, mutual funds for them, um, some of the private wealth business, and uh, we were the, also the technology analysts at the firm. So we had kind of a front seat on the uh, the evolution of the internet, um, you know, got to, got to hang out with fun people like Steve Case of America Online, um, you know, and, and really learn how the plumbing of the internet was built and structured. And uh, it was fun. Wow. I kind of miss, miss those days. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible how you take a company that's, um, you know, and you just achieve, uh, so, uh, you know, outstanding results for these companies and family offices. You're, you know, you just, it seems like you have this knack and knowledge to, to you're like a magician or a genie with these companies, um, how you just got them from X and they're producing um, the value, you took their value and, and just cracked it into huge numbers, which is incredible. And um, I want to ask you, any advice to someone looking to work with a wealthy family? You know, yeah, you know, and, and I want to I want to make a comment on what you just said, Marilyn. I think I think the most important thing is is having a process, right? And being intellectually honest about your process. So so I've developed and and they change over time, but I've developed processes for all the different things I do. So if I'm looking at a business, there's a you know a, a 60 step process that I followed. It started out as a one step process, and it's evolved into about 60 steps. But we just kind of systematically go through that process to make sure you don't miss anything. So if we're looking at it, another manager to put to invest some money with to give somebody capital to invest on our behalf, you know we've got a long process that we follow there. Um, you know, if you're buying a stock individually yourself, if you're buying a mutual fund or an ETF or you're allocating your own portfolio, I think it's important to have a process in place that you can go back and look at and say, wow, this really worked. Did I get lucky or is my process working? On the flip side, sometimes you don't make money in an investment and you need to go back and look at the process and say, hey, was there something wrong with the process? Did it not have a step in there where I could have foreseen why we lost money? Or maybe I just got a little unlucky. Being able to identify the difference between, hey, we know what we're doing, we did a good job, and we got lucky is very difficult. In this market environment where everything seems to be going up all the time, there's a lot of people who are fooling themselves to think that their process, if they really have one, is working all the time, when in fact they're getting a little lucky. So being able to, to separate your luck from your good decisions and then understanding, okay, what went into those good decisions so I can repeat it? That's critical to being successful in investing. So I, I wanted to emphasize that point because I think it's just, it's critical. You have you have to recognize when you're lucky and when you're unlucky too. Um, so you should always, you know, I think people probably heard, you know, write down your thesis. Why do I own this this company? Why, you know, the people buying GameStock a couple of months or a month or so ago, like, why are you buying it? Okay. Uh, because it's going up? Well, that's kind of a silly reason to just own just because it goes up. 
you know, you want to understand the underlying value. Am I getting a discount to the value? Do I think it's worth 15 and I'm buying it for 10? Okay, I have a chance to make some money. Do I think it's worth 15 and I'm buying it for 200? I'm probably not going to make money on that. So, <laughs> you know, so, so you've got, you got, you got to follow your process a little bit. So your question was any advice for, for working with a, a family? A couple of things, you know, it's a small universe. Uh, I don't exactly know how many family offices there are in the country. They're, they're growing certainly because as wealth is being created, more and more people are setting up family offices. Um, you know, I think it's important to, you have to be as an employer, you have to be really discreet with information that you share. Um, you know, people are always trying to figure out how to get in and sell something to us and get access to the family. And our job is to make sure that they, A, they don't get access to the family and B, we don't divulge any information that the family doesn't want divulged. So that confidentiality is super critical. Um, I think you need to have a skill that you offer that the, that the family you want to work for uh, needs. So in my case, for some reason, I am able to manage money and, and you know make really good risk adjusted returns. That's a, a skill that you know families want. If I was scheduling the household help, I don't know how to do that. I wouldn't be much much value add to the family in something like that. Um, you know, they've got a, they've got a really beautiful boat. You know, I couldn't drive the boat either, right? So we have we have somebody who does that and does that really well, and he's very experienced and a great guy. So you, there's all kinds of different niches inside these families. You just need to identify what are your strengths, and of course, what are your weaknesses too, and then are they applicable for something that a family will. You know needs and if it's not and this is your desire is to work for these families then you need to try and develop those skills um you know whether it's providing a concierge service for them um you know hey maybe you're maybe you're great at, at scheduling travel well these families travel a lot you know a lot of them have their own their own vehicles and traveling whether it's planes or boats or whatever and so there's a, a level of coordination that needs to go on to operate those things i mean running a you know, a large boat and plane is like having a, 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 a you know, a fleet of, a fleet of vehicles in your own business. So, so if, if that's your skill set, then own that and then try and, you know, find a connection to get you in front of that family, right? It's, it's, it's always about the connections. You know, you and I met through LinkedIn. Um, you know, LinkedIn is a great tool for that. You identify a family or the families you might be interested in and use your LinkedIn connections to find out who might be connected there. That you can possibly leverage for an introduction. I think that's probably the, the the best way to get you know to get to a family. But you know the confidentiality is critical. You know and loyalty. You have to be loyal to these families. Yeah, and that makes sense too. And uh, like you said, like you have a very special. I would say I don't know a, a gift mastery of just um, you know getting incredible numbers on what you do you you really specialize in your skills so so lucky to have you is there any any fun stories you want to share like um, maybe as a first investor are you able to share a, your um, one of your favorite investments or anything like that just for fun um, you know yeah favorite investments so you know we tend to we run very concentrated portfolios as an example so we are you know, I will run like an eight stock portfolio. Um, it's not super exciting for your crowd, but here, here's an example of some of the things that we own. You know, we own Costco and Target. Why? Because people go there. <laughs> you know, I mean, you saw the downturn. I mean, Target reported their numbers. Their numbers were great last quarter, for the Christmas quarter, when you know the country's kind of struggling economically in a lot of a lot of spots. So you know, they take they're 
they're not low-end, you know, stores catering to, you know, to they're not like the 99 cent store. They're the, they're kind of that next level up. They cater to the, you know, to the lower ends of the middle class, to the upper ends, you know, of the middle class, right? People who spend money consistently. So we like businesses like that. Um, you know, we still own Apple. Um, still a leader, you know, still growing their business. Uh, it is getting a little expensive. And so we, we may tail that down a little bit. But so but we, we tend to own businesses where we think there's good long growth prospects, great management teams, they're built to last. We want sustainable businesses, and we want businesses that when we buy them that we think are undervalued, that the marketplace is, is disrespecting for some reason. We bought Target when they had their credit card fraud issue, you know, back a number of years ago. And the stock fell like into the 40s because people thought, oh, nobody's going to shop there because their credit cards were hacked. Well, guess what? People still shop at Target and it's not the, you know, it's, it's not the fanciest store in the world. But guess what? They've got everything you need. It's a one-stop shop. It works well. And now the stock is almost $200. So we look for, we look for those dislocations. Those the stock gets, gets misvalued for some reason that's not a permanent problem in the company. Ah, excellent. Just a temporary yeah. issue. Yeah, that's beautiful. And um, are we allowed to ask, did you splurge? Is there anything you'd say you splurged on? Um, you said you uh, because you retired twice for a second. Is there any fun thing that you just enjoyed um, for being successful? Because that's kind of like you're like, wow, they made it. Um, are you allowed to share anything fun like that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wish there was more of that. But no, you know, we're, we're we live a pretty modest uh, existence, you know, we, we're, we're in our home a lot. We have three kids, uh, you know, two are still in college. So I'm still footing the bill for that. So I guess I'm splurging on the, the two college educations right now. Um, you know, we travel a little bit, uh, mostly domestically. Uh, we were fortunate fortunate enough to be able to go on the family boat uh, a couple years ago. They, they let me take my family up there for a week, which was phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> truly an off-the-charts, once-in-a-lifetime kind of, kind of vacation, which we were super grateful for. Um, we are members of Inspirata, which is kind of a travel uh, a conglomerate, or I don't know what you call it, affinity group, where you have access to a bunch of, you know, kind of really beautiful homes around the country. You have to pay for them. But so we, that is, I guess, one of our splurges. When we do go travel, we try to stay in really super nice homes um, and, uh, you know, where we can take multiple people. We took uh, five couples uh, four other couples with us for our 25th anniversary to Telluride. We rented a house up there that was amazing. It was a 10,000 square foot ho home on a golf course in Telluride and just, you know, hung out there for the week. So I guess that's it. Travel and friends. Yeah. I just, cause I mean, you, you retire twice and you're always working. I just was like, do you do anything else besides work? <laughs> so I, I, try, I try, I try to work out almost every day. I play golf when I can, uh, you know, we ski as a family. And, you know, we do a lot of travel to, uh, you know, see our kids. So, you know, they all play sports and, um, you know, traveling to see college games is really super fun. This year has been kind of a downer because there has been no games, but my daughter's soccer season's getting ready to start up in Arizona. So we're looking forward to traveling out there and, and seeing her play. And I'm uh, looking forward to next fall to getting back to, uh, to Mississippi to see the, uh, the Rebels play some games where my youngest son goes. Oh yeah, and um, and you showed me all your USC champion hats, and um, so how you know just real quickly before we go, how did COVID affect your life and um your business real quick, and then you know um I think we'd love to hear that real quick. Yeah, I mean I, I worked at home for three months, um, mostly because I needed to to have a clear head, and it's a little busy here in the office. We never closed our offices. We're considered we're not essential, but we're critical because we run housing. Um, so we made decisions to stay open. Some some of the of our our older employees uh went home for health concerns, 
but most people have been here every day. I'm here today, as you you and I are in video, so you can see I'm, I'm sitting in the office. Um, you know, other than the market disruptions, I'd say the biggest the biggest impact on on our business is because people who want to access us, you know, present us with investment ideas, aren't traveling as much. We're doing a lot more, you know, Zoom videos with them. So that's increased their capacity to have meetings with us by probably 5x because, you know, typically somebody from the East Coast would fly on a Monday, have a couple days of meetings, fly home on Thursday or Friday, and, you know, they lose two days to travel. Well, now they don't have to travel. So there's two more days a week that they can do meetings. <laughs> and our capacity hasn't increased at all. So we've made a number of changes uh, from that standpoint. One is at the end of last year, the last two months, I stopped taking calls and meetings from investments because we were overbooked and I couldn't, you know, I was about ready to, to drop from the exhaustion of all the meetings. Yeah. And this year, and this year I only take, take calls and, and uh, meetings on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, trying to control the flow a little bit because while they increase their capacity, five X, we haven't increased our capacity at all. So we do, it's just a, it's just kind of a forced way to, to help our schedule. Oh, beautiful. Well, and, and so if somebody wanted to keep up with you, where could they keep up with you? Um, a website company on um, LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn certainly. Um, you know, I'm not. I don't keep it super updated, and and it's a, it's a, my description of what I do here is a little vague. Uh, that goes back to the confidentiality of the family um, issue. Um, I do speak at the local universities uh, probably, you know, four to six times a semester, whether it's USC, UCLA, Loyola, San Diego State, you know, Cal State Bakersfield, Cal State Fullerton, UC Irvine. Um, so periodically, you'll see something advertised by by the universities about that. And that's just trying to give back and helping the kids. You know, I think it's important. Um, you know, I've made enough mistakes in life and, and done some good things too, but a lot, enough mistakes that boy, if I could, <laughs> if I could impart a little bit of, of helpful commentary to the kids, I, I feel like it's you know it's time well spent. Well, thank you so much, Ned, for being on the show today. Thank you, Moguls, for listening. Until next week, cheers, stay healthy, and we'll we'll see you soon. Bye.